All right, movies in San Diego Comic Con 2023. Put your hands together and make some noise. We're about to watch Fat Man Beyond with Kevin Smith and Mark Bernard. Mark Bernardi. Hey! What? Kids, welcome to Comic Con 2023, man. Has everyone been having a good con? Yeah! It's been absolutely lovely. Me and Mark were just uh, backstage upstairs, uh, which sounds like the title of our new TV show, Backstage Upstairs. Um, and we were uh, discussing the moment, appreciating the moment. Uh, uh, something that is. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to do because uh, we're, we're always, when I say we, I'm always fucking busy creating a next thing to do, a next thing to do, a next thing to do, until I'm in the thing that I created a few months ago and in that moment. And sometimes in the moment, you forget to appreciate it because you're on your way to the next fucking thing. But I said to Mark, I'm going to slow down on this show and appreciate the fact that it's Comic-Con 2023 and it's going to be over before I know it. So just for the next hour, kids. We're going to kick back and appreciate the fact that we're all fucking alive and we're all here to celebrate the popular arts. We're all here for fucking passion. In order to do that, we're going to get drunk in doing so. I feel like I'm somewhat responsible for your new I'm getting drunk during You are. When I wind up in a rehab, I'm going to be like, Mark Arden said the blue milk was good. <laughs> I quit the weed and now this. I did. I fucking six months without weed and now I'm like, booze. There's the answer. <laughs> uh, we are here at the movies pop up at the Tin Roof Inn in San Diego. Give it up for the good folks at the Tin Roof Inn. Uh, you got me, you got Mark Bernard, and of course you got Bamf Man himself. JC is here. Bam. Dr. Josh Roush on the Wheels of Steel shooting us. Give it up for Dr. Josh Roush. Well, what, what is he a doctor of? Divinity. Divinity, there it is. Um, so I expressed the notion of like, uh, right before we went, they were like, what do you want to drink? And I was like, you know what? Like, do they have pina coladas? And the most excited I've ever seen Josh in his life was like, yes, let's get you drunk. I want to see that. They didn't have pina coladas. What am I drinking? A strawberry hurricane. Strawberry hurricane. Uh, I asked for the uh, fruitiest drink they have. Let's see how it goes down. Can I get a straw? Uh, that was lovely. So I asked them to set up three. So I didn't have to wait for fucking drinks and I could just fucking feed the need as we go along. Oh, what are you drinking? I got Mai Tais. What's in that? Uh, booze. <laughs> but they were like, what do you want to drink? It's like, I'm good with water. And I was like, three fruity lady drinks. And I'm like, then three for me as well. Set them up, barkeep. Shot for shot. 
to you kids. You sold us out in record time for this show. Thank you so much. How has your Comic-Con been thus far? This is the first time I've seen you in I know. this time. Uh, it has been the most wonderful con I've ever had in my entire life. Fucking A. Give it up awesome. for that, man. And I'll tell you why. Tell us. Because we got to screen Splinter last night. Um, the short film that, that I made with the help, I'm assuming, of some of you good people who may or may not have contributed to the Kickstarter. Um, it felt like the natural full circle of, of making that short is bringing it back to Comic-Con. Like the place that has built and stoked so much nerd dreams in my own heart. Right. And the desire to interact with the culture that I love and then be a part of making the culture that I love. And then to bring the culture that I made to this place. Like it was, it was so wonderful. And I, you know me, like when we first launched the Kickstarter, I was like, Kevin, I'm going to have to put in my own money to make this happen. You're like, no, you won't. I was like, you're going to put in the money? He's like, no, I won't. Yeah, I was like, fuck that. Like, I won't even pay for my own art. Why would I pay for yours? And he was like, no, like the, the, the fan base, the people will, will show up. Like, and I didn't believe it until they showed up, you showed up in record numbers. And then I also was like, well, we're going to screen at the Comet at 7.30 on a Thursday. It's day one. Nobody's going to come. It's late. People are going to be out fucking partying already. It's like it's a 300 seat room. It's like it's gonna be me and 12 people, and we'll just fucking play Uno together, and that'll be it. <laughs> Skip. Skip. Yeah. Reverse. <laughs> Draw four. <laughs> and uh, and it was a packed house. There were like three empty seats. We screened the short at the top, and it was a standing ovation, um, which I took no pictures of because I was too busy crying because it was such a beautiful moment. I know, right? And this this is a man who doesn't really fucking cry. He just hates things. <laughs> So to, to reach him emotionally, man. It took a lot. Yeah. And uh, and friend of the podcast, Dave Desmolchin. Dave uh, was there? He was my moderator for said podcast. That's right. We talked about that last time. His birthday is coming up. I think it's today or today tomorrow. Today or tomorrow, yeah. So Happy birthday, Dave Desmolchin, man. Very much so. And he's here promoting his comic book. He's promoting his independent film that was not produced by or funded by any uh, corporate entity. Uh, Late Night with the Devil. Yes, which um, we talked about on a previous episode is absolutely wonderful. If you get a chance to see it when it's finally available somewhere, see Late Night with the Devil. It's, it's screening wonderful. tomorrow night here at the convention. Seriously. Uh, yeah, like go to his Instagram and you'll see the all. But it's yeah tomorrow night at like 10 p.m. somewhere in the gas lamp. So go. If you're here, go. If you're at home, sorry. You don't get to see it. Um, what, was that, what was it like after the panel was done? Like... In the moment, it's all adrenaline and all joy and shit. When it's all over, is that when you have the moment to reflect, to be like, holy fuck, I did it? I mean, it's, it's, it's all gratitude, right? It's all like, all of these people helped me make a thing. The people who were on the stage with me, my actors, my producers, my, my department heads, everybody in the crowd, everybody on the internet, like it's just deep, deep gratitude for helping me do a thing, for helping me make a dream come true. And that remains my feeling about it. Like every time I get to talk about it, every time I get to go to a festival with it, it is all just thanks everybody for showing up because I was never sure anybody would. The, um, that's beautiful. Give it up for Mark, man. He had Thank God they lined up three because I'm done with one. Holy shit. Um, the, uh, I need a straw too, apparently. <laughs> yes, it helps it go faster. I'm fighting with this ice all day. Um, I have had a wonderful con. Uh, we've This is the second year in a row that we've set up the movies pop-up uh, at Tin Roof Inn, and it's become a, a wonderful home for us. 
it affords us the ability to do shows here as well. But this is the con where um, I turned into Mr. Potato Head. They did a, a pop tater of me, so it's Silent Bob, Mr. Potato Head. Um, I knew that was coming, and I knew that was a. I was describing it today, uh, thusly, um, to Captain Ripman, um, John Sprenglemeyer, with whom I do the Masquerade book, and he's done covers for Quick Stops and stuff. Uh, he did the Jay and Silent Bob Secret Stash logo. He did my Fat Man logo years ago. Uh, I try to organize life as a cascading joy machine for myself, which is like I start things and put them in motion and then start another thing, put it in motion, start things and put it in motion. And the thing I started like eight, ten months ago, like you see it, you approve it, and then you're moving on to the next thing and you won't see it for like eight to 10 months or a year or something like that. And then one day it just falls into your lap and creates this joy where you're like, oh my God, I, I remember approving this. I remember working on this and it's an existing thing. It's here now. And so I had that moment a few times. Number one, uh, Roosevelt's did this like beautiful fucking blunt man and chronic button down shirt, which we're selling at our movies pop-up store. I got to see that in person, it's fucking fantastic. And I remember months ago approving the design and being like, can my nose be smaller? And fucking, <laughs> there it is, it exists. Same thing with the pop tater. I remember like they sent me a picture of it and then I said they sent me one of them like in New Jersey, so I actually saw it and stuff. And then it's for sale here on the con floor. But the thing that I forgot, didn't forget, but it was just like, I approved it, went through every one of the fucking drawings and was like delighted by it but it was months ago and now it's come into fruition and is probably the item that has defined Comic-Con 2023 for me is Garbage Pail Kids did a, yeah, toss one of those over, did a, a what do they call a collab with us and so they did a View Askew Universe set of Garbage Pail Kids. And so there's tons of artwork of all the characters I created done Garbage Pail Kids style. And as much as I enjoyed it, as much as like people have been like, oh my God, you're a garbage pail kid now and shit. Um, Jason Muse, who has been standing next to me personally and professionally for the last 30 fucking years and stuff, and is inured to like most of the things that happen to us, just blithely indifferent. The cascading joy machine for him is completely different than mine. And he loves seeing like us be toys and shit. But this, profoundly impacted him. When he saw this, he got glassy-eyed. And he was just like, this is a higher honor than when we put our feet in the cement at that place. <laughs> and I was like, Groman's Chinese Theater? He goes, this is my Groman's Chinese Theater. He was like, I collected these as a fucking kid and seeing himself as a garbage pail kid like put such joy into his face. The only thing that will make him as happy, I think, is he keeps talking about it. And I used to think it was a joke, but apparently it's serious. He's like, we need to be wax figures at that place. And I'm like, Madame Tussauds? And he's like, yes, that's when I'll know we've made it. But he's like, until then, this is the surest sign that we fucking made it. Watching the joy in his face alone and watching the internet light up about this. Internet is a wonderful place for me, but it's also fraught with peril. That's where people can come at me and stuff. But they also largely, by and large, come at me with joy. This seems to have created so much fucking joy. As, as joyful of it was, as joyful as it was for me to see the drawings and approve them and be like, yeah, those names are funny and shit like that. 
having people interact with it and react to it online has been absolutely fucking wonderful. So this is con 2023 for me. That and also we did a panel last night for Masters of the Universe, um, which was absolutely fucking wonderful. I, I begged off of doing a Hall H show this year, and that was before like the strikes and stuff like that. Every year they, they're very gracious at Comic-Con International, and they're always like, uh, hey man, write up a thing for your panel, for your Hall H, whatever you want to call it this year. And you know, I went through a thing this year and, and my mental health thing and stuff. And so normally doing Hall H for me is a joy, but it's also this weird moment where a lot of my self-worth comes from external forces. I can't validate myself. I need an audience, obviously. And so Hall H is this weird moment for me where like, if it's not packed, like I'm always like, oh my God, I'm irrelevant and it's all over and shit like that. And so I usually follow the Marvel panel and the Marvel panel is the, the definition of a packed Hall H. And then they're like, you know, stick around next for Kevin Smith. And like fucking half the audience leaves or something like that. Or in the year of J.J. Abrams, all the audience fucking leaves. <laughs> so there's always this moment where like, I can't wait to do Hall H, but at the same time, I'm like, what if I get up there and fucking seats are empty and blah, blah, blah. So this year I wanted to spare myself from that. And I was like, I don't really have anything to promote. So I'm going to take this year off of Hall H. And so I told the folks at Comic-Con a few months ago, like, yeah, I'm going to skip Hall H this year leave it for better people than I. I was like, I've got the movies pop up and stuff, so I know I'll, I'll be there with an audience and that'll be fine. Um, so SAG struck and every person that normally goes to Hall H is not at Hall H. I would have been the biggest fucking thing in Hall H if I'd just done the fucking pattern. As it stands, because there are no fucking actors here, you and me may be the most famous people at fucking Comic-Con right now. When do I get the free shit that famous people get? Good question. I'm still waiting for it myself and shit. But fucking, I got these and that's what matters. Um, before we go further, kids, we have a sponsor. We should shout them out. Uh, the good folks at Emmy Eats dot com are our sponsors tonight and for those of you who are like what's that emmy makes ramen noodles uh and they make them for people not just like me but definitely people like me they're vegan as fuck <laughs> and when i went vegan i had to say goodbye to ramen noodles and shit because they're not but now fucking thanks to the good folks at emmy they are man they're low carb they're high protein they're they're fucking tasty um i they sent me a free box and my kid was over the house and she was like, what's this? And I was like, this is Emmy. They do these ramen noodles that I'm going to do a commercial for and shit. And she took fucking all of the best flavors and left me with fucking shrimp, <laughs> which I never even ate shrimp when I was not a vegan and stuff like that. But so I ate the fucking shrimp and even that was fucking good, man. Emmyeats.com, I-M-M-L-I, I-M-M-I-E-A-T-S dot com slash fatman is the address to go to. Or you just go to emmyeats.com and use the code fatman. They're going to get five bucks off, man. That's emmyeats.com slash fatman to get five bucks off. This shit is legit fucking wonderful, man. Um, it's a perfect low-carb snack. It's got a lot of fucking protein. If, uh, if, if you're one of those people that's like, I got to eat some shit on the go. It just reminds me of fucking eating ramen noodles when I was a kid, man. Like, we were a poor fucking family, so my mom would buy stacks of this fucking shit. And that was, like, what sustained me through most of my youth. 
it tastes like a happy fucking childhood. That's the best review I could fucking give it. Take over. I'm gonna get drunk. <laughs> Turns out my childhood was not that happy, apparently. <laughs> uh, like each packet has only 5G of net carbs, keeping lean and active. Get more protein in your diet with this shit. With 22 grams of protein, three times more than traditional brands, it's a perfect pre or post workout meal. And hey, if you want to stay in shape with a delicious, comforting bowl that tastes way better than those bland protein shakes, boom, Emmy eats. 300 calories and 85% less net carbs than normal instant ramen, which I grew up eating and stuff. So you can eat, you eat it guilt-free. It improves your gut health because it has, uh, uh, Jesus, 18 grams of fiber in it. You're going to shit bricks, kids. <laughs> Emmy will make you shit. There's the best fucking slogan I could possibly Build a house with your own feces. <laughs> yes. Emmy eats. Uh, so test, try it out, man. Help us out. Go to emmyeats.com. I-M-M-I-E-A-T-S.com slash fat man uh you're gonna get five bucks off your first fucking order uh give him a shot a, a shot i i absolutely love it that's not me just saying shit and whatnot that's me legitimately eating this shit and love it and my kid who's finicky like morris the fucking cat she fucking loves it as well that's a deep cuts reference um yeah. from our childhood oh yeah. shit even you it took you a second um morris, damn good shit emmyeats.com slash fat man we thank the good folks at Emmy Eats for sponsoring this night's episode. Put your hands together for Emmy Eats. Okay, business is out of the way. Let's do pleasure, man. What can we talk about at Comic-Con? First off, let's acknowledge the fact that there's a strike going on. You're striking for the Writers Guild. I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America. I'm striking for, yes. And you've been striking, and I've been striking with you as a Writers Guild member for what? Oh, close to 80 days at this point. Over 80 days, uh, some 12, maybe 13 weeks. I don't know how math works. Um, but, but coming to Comic-Con, and especially for the actors, it's been about what can we promote, what can we talk about. Because um, SAG joined the fucking fight. They did. They Last are, time we did a show, had they joined yet, or they were on they the verge? Had, they were on the verge of it. And so since then... The 160,000 member strong Screen Actors Guild also went on strike for many of the same reasons, for protections against AI, for increased transparency of, of residuals and streaming numbers and, and just like basic human decency. And so that's why we're all on strike and there are rules from what we can talk about. Comic-Con is a little bit fraught with can you promote things, can you even appear, can you do panels? Um, can we be journalists? Can we be quote-unquote influencers? We've never influenced anybody to do anything ever. Right. But whatever. And Except so, eatemmyeats.com. Yes. <laughs> yes. Get your fuck up, man. We need sponsors. <laughs> Get your dick hard and your balls clean. <laughs> Fat man beyond. And, uh, and so a lot of it is what's the spirit of the strike? Why are we striking? What will help the cause? And a lot of it is like not shouting out, not promoting the work from people who have not kind of respected us as, as sort of collaborators. We had a conversation this week, a text conversation, where Mark was like, we can't talk about movies or, movies TV, or TV shows because of the SAG strike, because of the Writers Guild strike. But then you got a follow-up thing that said... Yeah, it was saying that like we're not, according to SAG, we're not prohibiting journalists from doing their job. And I'm like, well, I've never turned in my press card 
it's still in my fancy hat in my closet. Yes. And so, like, I am still a journalist, which means I can still talk about movies I've seen and shows that I've liked. And, I mean, less trailers, because that is just straight up promotional, so we won't be covering right. new shit the can on the pike, but we can still do a show. Uh, we can still talk about why we like the things we like, or in some cases, why we don't. Um, what? <laughs> I was going to say, there's only a threat of one of us doing that. Oh, mister, I really love The Flash. <laughs> I, I saw it four times. I know. You're the only one. You I think so, at the end of the day. You saw it as well that many times? I own it. You own it? You bought it already? Michael Keaton. That's what I was, I was saying. Luke. Luke uh, <laughs> I bought it and I hate it. Luke, Luke, who runs our website and whatnot and put together the movies pop up, uh, the sales experience and whatnot. Um, Luke's a big DC uh, movie kid and he didn't catch it, The Flash, when it was in theaters because it went fast. Um, but he fucked with it recently on video and was more in your camp. <laughs> Very, I mean, beyond your camp. He was like, what the fuck? But I was like, you got to get to the Michael Keaton part. Have you gotten to Michael Keaton? He's like, not yet. And he's like, I was just so dispirited by the whole thing. I didn't even get that far. I was like, get to Michael Keaton. That's where the movie becomes a movie for me. Seeing him as Batman again was fucking everything and whatnot. But he was. Give it up for fucking Michael Keaton. Sadly. Look, I'm not going to lament what we're going to miss going forward, not having Michael Keaton play Batman again. Because, like, fucking a year ago, two years ago, it was like, Michael Keaton's going to be everything in the fucking DC universe from now on. And now we just have this one bite at the apple. But seeing my fucking Batman, and don't get me wrong, I love Batfleck and whatnot. Like, literally love Batfleck. But seeing Michael Keaton put on the suit and be like, how much do you weigh? And shit like that. <laughs> really fucking did it for me. So I know a lot of people are like, fuck the Flash, but I'm like, well, but don't fuck Michael Keaton Batman, or, or do, but, but don't fucking. So yes, I did. I'm not gonna take a bullet for liking that movie and shit. I already take enough shit online for people for that. That being said, the Flash was not the movie of the summer. Um, the Mission Impossible didn't turn out to be the movie of the summer. Yeah. As we sit here and speak right now, though, based on the articles I've seen and whatnot, the movie of the summer is fucking Barbie, apparently. How many people have seen Barbie so far? Well, it's opening tonight. That one right there. Well, it opened last night and did fucking like $23 million in Thursday night previews, which is more than any movie has fucking done. They were like articles all over about that's more than the Batman. That's more than fucking Guardians of the Galaxy. That's more than Across the Spider-Verse. They are projecting the Barbie movie to make $130 million this weekend. Now, you may be like, what the fuck does this have to do with you? I am now not just a filmmaker and shit with no skin in the Barbie game, but I'm a film exhibitor. I own a movie theater called Smod Castle Cinemas. It has been a fucking lean summer. The Flash was in and out of our theaters in eight fucking days. Like Ernie, Ernie's podcast keeper, Ernie O'Donnell, who runs the theater, had to let it go. I was like, what are you letting it go for? It's not even two weeks. He's like, nobody is fucking coming. Uh, Mission Impossible was supposed to be the movie that saved the summer, and it opened okay. Did less business than the last one opened at. So as a film exhibitor, man, like where what you count on is selling popcorn and fucking soda, and in order to do that, you need people to come to the movies. Ernie sent me a fucking photo today of a line down the block of people for fucking both Barbie and Oppenheimer. 
And I know we're not supposed to be extolling the virtues of the fucking any AMPTP uh, company, and that would be Warner Brothers. And who puts out Oppenheimer? Universal. Universal. But I, I'm, that's not me talking as a SAG member. This is me talking as a film exhibitor, a member of NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners. Can we mobilize you guys? Yes, <laughs> fucking absolutely, man. We're a member of NATO now. <laughs> it makes people real scared when you say it. Shit. Then when you say what it is, they're like, oh. Can I have popcorn for this war now? Yes. <laughs> they, those two movies have, have saved summer 2023. As an exhibitor... As a filmmaker, I got no skin in the game. As a film fan, sometimes you got you don't have skin in the game, but you have an opinion or something like that. But as somebody who whose business lives and dies by movies that people actually want to come see, having those two movies come out this weekend at the same fucking time, and I know there was you know a lot of fun online about op, with Barbenheimer, Barbenheimer, and shit like that. Which movie will do better? And they're battling head to head and shit. To have both movies do insanely well. Barbie's gonna open at 130 million, but it looks like Oppenheimer's gonna open over 50 million. And that's a fucking three hour movie about a guy who made the nuclear fucking bomb. That is fucking awesome for movie going, man. Like, as a guy who owns a theater, that's fucking everything. Now I'll put my SAG hat back on. Fuck the studios. <laughs> How dare they do a thing? But also, I've had people ask me online, like, what can we do to support the strikes? Should we stop going to movies? And I'm always like, no, don't do that because that will hurt people who own movie theaters, who we're not striking against. We have nothing. We have no beef with them. You're not paying my residuals. You are not in charge of AI. That's Skynet, apparently. Yes. And so, like, if you'd like to support, like, there's lots of ways to do it. Just social amplification, helping explain to your family why we're on strike. Like, I did an interview with NPR Illinois talking about it. Well, there's like, explain to Middle America why we should give a fuck. Right. And so I spent 45 minutes explaining to Middle America why to give a fuck. Here's a great opportunity to explain. Like, like the internet, when SAG went on strike, there was a lot of people, a lot of folks on the internet are like, fuck it, the billionaires want more money and shit. The SAG fight is really not about the Tom Cruises of this world, which is why Tom Cruise doesn't walk the fucking picket line and shit. <laughs> Who it's about are the people, the actors in SAG, who can barely make $26,000 a year to cover their fucking medical coverage, to get their medical bills and shit, because the business has shrunk in such ways in terms of what they pay out, and the business model has changed. There was a time where you could do a TV show and collect residuals up until the time you were 80 fucking years old and shit. And the checks get smaller and smaller. There's a bar in Los Angeles called Residuals that on the wall has a series of checks for like fucking residual checks as they get more and more ridiculous, like one cent and shit like that. That used to be like the unnormal aspect of it. Like, this is cute. That is now the fucking norm. If you're an actor on a fucking uh, a streaming show, that's what your check looks like. There was a was an actress on um, or an actor Orange on is the New Black. Orange is the New Black, who Kimiko put up what? Who is it? Was the person's name? Kimiko Glenn. Kimiko Glenn. Kimiko Glenn put up her uh, check or her uh, the, the last five residual checks that she made, and it was like all in, like $12 or something. I think it was 28 fucking dollars for a show that the entire world has watched, which is Orange is the New Black. And so that has everything to do with like the model that came together because of the streaming world. And streaming world created new opportunities for actors. There's thrice, four times, five times as many shows as there used to be. But because of the deal they made eons ago, the structure of residuals doesn't exist like it used to. You were on a show, not even a hip TV show. 
you could live off that later on. It could pay for your medical coverage as long as you made like 26K a year or something like that. Most of the folks who are in SAG aren't able to hit that anymore. So for all the folks online who are like, Ugh, millionaires, billionaires wanting more money, it's literally not about that. It is about the working actor who can't fucking make ends meet. A lot of people on these streaming shows that are successful are talking about now, coming out and being honest about like, I have a, literally two other fucking jobs, even though I'm on a hit fucking show in order to make my rent in New York or something. New York is a very expensive place to live, but some cats have to live there. Same with Los Angeles. Some cats have to live in Los Angeles in order to be in these things, but it's a costly city to live. So the SAG fight isn't about fucking rich people getting richer, man. It's about people who are choosing for their, for their vocation in life. Their calling is to self-express in, in major ways by getting dialogue and in minor ways by just being in the background. And background artists are threatened by the fact that the studios put forward a deal where it's like, if you're in a thing once, we own your image in perpetuity and we get to use it anywhere we fucking want, which is a fucking crime. It's like stealing somebody's image and like because of fucking AI and CG, they could just use them over and over again instead of paying them each time they show up to work. And it's not like for a million dollars, we will take your life rights. It's yeah. for a hundred dollars. We will scan your body and your face and we can put you in anything despite your own philosophical obligations to that or yes. objections to that. Do you not want to be in a horror movie? Fuck you, you're gonna be in a horror movie now. Do you not want to be in pornography? Fuck you, you're gonna take one of the face. Because we have your face. Wait, I didn't know that was a possibility. Everything I'm is signing up for that shit. Nothing is forbidden. That's true, they could put you in the crowd scene of a porno. Yeah. We're just cucking it out from the side and shit. <laughs> And there's no rules about what they can and can't do to your face. They could change your fucking clothes. That means they could put an arm on you going like this and shit. You could be doing things that you wouldn't even intend to do in your yeah. performance. So that's what the SAG fight is about, kids. It's not about like people, rich people getting richer and stuff. Um, that's the very cynical approach to the argument. And trust me, people of the level of like Tom Cruise aren't sitting there going like, I want more and shit, let them eat cake. This is about people who can't even fuck cake, man. They can't even afford immyeats.com. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bam. So, oh, Bamf Man's in. What's up, my friend? Well, it's also, I don't know if you saw Fran Drescher drop that uh, Bob Iger makes $78,000 a day, per day. So it's not like, they're fighting for money that would come out of all of our pockets. They're fighting for money that's going to be coming out of very, very much richer people's pockets. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, and those richer people, the big argument is like those rich people don't create anything. Yes, they don't create anything except they create wealth for shareholders. And that's why the shareholders reward people like that with exorbitant fucking salaries because it's like you made me more money. But that making me more money means somebody else got screwed out of fucking money. And it's like, look, I applaud your ability to make your shareholders more money, but not at the expense of people who actually create this fucking shit and put asses in seats. And it's like, whether you're writing a thing and in charge of it, whether in the background of a fucking thing, it's a collective creative effort. And those, those people should feel and, and receive proper remuneration for, for the efforts they're putting in. Absolutely. This was my third, that's my fourth. Yes, you've won. More truth is coming, kids. <laughs> Next, I'll tell you what I really think about Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, is, it is always odd to me personally 
that anybody would choose the side of the faceless corporation against the, the poor working man. And poor I'm putting in quotes, but still, to your point, lots of people here who are not barely middle class, yeah. who are just doing this because they love it. They do it because it's art and they want to make art. And the Writers Guild, you know, even to put a number on, the Writers Guild is looking for 2% of the annual profits of these giant streamers. And a billion dollars is hard to fucking wrap your head around. Like, it sounds like it's a number whatever, but like, a million seconds is like four months, right? A billion seconds is 30 years. And so if they're making $40 billion a year, and we want over three years, 400 million, that's nothing to them. It's, and it's not 400 million for one person. Yeah, it's, it's for everybody. Yes. It's for everybody. And meanwhile, there's dudes making $400 million a year. Uh, one guy. And so it is It is about balance. It's about being able to participate in the engines of your own success. And that's ultimately it. And deciding you want to like saddle up and side with the faceless megacorp and not the people who make the shit you love. It's, it's, it's a weird decision. It is at the end of the day. But um, fuck, I'm drunk. The, uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah! Um, enough, uh, kind of enough strike talk. Uh, it will never be done talking until it's done. I will, I do want to shout out, like, you know, Bob Iger, when the SAG strike, uh, kicked off, like, just fucking put his foot right in his mouth by going, like, I don't understand these people, man. They're being unrealistic and shit like that. Um, Ted Sarandos, who is the, the guy at Netflix, mm -hmm. actually, like, put out a really human statement where it talked about some, I don't know if it was a statement or an interview, but he talked about, he's like, look, I grew up in a union household. My father was a union member, an electrician, blah, blah, blah. And he's the guy going, like, I want to solve this as quickly as possible. I want to go to the table and I want to make it work. So there are people who, who see and understand, like, just because you work at a giant mega corporation and shit, doesn't mean you're like, you know, let them eat fucking cake and stuff. They understand that they need artists in order to fucking do what they do. You can't collect that giant fucking bonus paycheck for making shareholders a bunch of money unless you have something people want to fucking watch. And in order to have something people want to watch, writers have to go back to work. Actors have to go back to work. So hopefully the strike ends sooner uh, rather than later. Now I saw because yes, give it up for that one guy. I was on a, um, talk about like fucking, as much as like I support the Writers Guild, I was on a panel for Masters of the Universe yesterday, and there were a few cats online who were like, aren't you a fucking striking writer? Shouldn't you be outside striking against uh, Netflix and shit like that? Here's the sad truth. Animation writers, not part of the WGA. By and large, no. Yeah, tell them why. Mark fucking, I was saying this backstage to Mark, and he told me this history, and I was like, I didn't fucking know that. Tell them why people that write, largely, people that write animation aren't a part of the Writers Guild. Um, yeah, the, the Animation Guild, uh, which is a part of Viazzi, which is part of like, you know, the sort of electricians and, the, and most of the crew members who work on a, on a set uh, are part of Viazzi, which is an incredibly strong union. They seem, they're standing by our side in solidarity. But the reason that exists is because back in the 30s or whatever, when Walt Disney was beginning to, to increase its output, the Writers Guild of America, then somewhat new, but still, you know, gaining strength, wanted the animation writers under their fucking auspices. And Walt Disney was like, no, what if, what if I start a guild 
that you all are members of, and I'll kind of take care of you, and it'll be fine, everybody. Well, that sounds like an amazing charitable thing. You're the best person in the world, Walt Disney. Nothing problematic whatsoever. And, uh, and ultimately what happened was they ended up folded into a union in which the animation writers are a like, very high minority. Like There's not a ton of, of animation writers in that massive union, and so they have no collective bargaining power. They will never go on strike. They can never do what we're doing now, which is force people to take them seriously. And so they don't get residuals on the things that they write. Their health care is incredibly hard to get and not nearly as robust. Their pension plan is not as robust. And they, every day I talk to an animation artist, like, man, I wish I was in the WGA because you guys have power and you guys can strike and you guys can fight for the people who do the work. And it's unfortunate. And every year there is some overture to try and wrap our heads around it, but then Disney still doesn't want that. Warner Brothers still doesn't want that. All the people who are making cartoons in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s are like, we like it the way it is. It's cheaper for us to do. And it's, it's so desperately unfortunate, but that's why if you're writing a cartoon, you can pretty much talk about the work that you did. You could promote it because that guild is not on strike. Yeah, and the thing is, like some people are like, well, fucking, if you don't make a lot of money as a cartoon writer, don't write fucking cartoons. You don't write cartoons to get super wealthy. You write cartoons because you grew up watching fucking cartoons. And as a child, the moment you realize, like, there was a name attached to these things. Like, you know, I watched fucking Looney Tunes till, uh, I still watch Looney Tunes. And when I was a kid, like, the name Michael Maltese meant something to me. Because I'm like, I saw that name over and over again. And the idea of, of like, these are people that make this. Like, you wanted to be a part of that fraternity, sorority. You wanted to be a part of, like, the people who can do right for a fucking cartoon. I can't draw for shit. If I could, I wouldn't make all these terrible movies people hate. I love them all. Thank you very much. Um, so does my mom. But, um, but I can write. I can put a few words together and shit. And the idea of putting words together and then handing it over to an animator who will turn it into something fucking magical has always captured my imagination. So given the chance to write animation, even though you know my fucking agent flat out told me, like, you're gonna get rich doing this shit. It's like, I remember when I was first writing comic books. First time I got a job writing Daredevil. My agent at the time scoffed at me. And he was just like, what are you, do? What are you wasting your time for? He goes, what do they pay you? I was like, it's $200 a page. He goes, ugh. $200 a page, I can get you like 200,000 to rewrite a fucking script. I was like, I'm not doing this shit for the money. I'm doing this shit because I grew up reading comic books and imagined what an amazing fucking life it would be if I could write that fucking comic book. So same with animation, working for animation. I've enjoyed my time on Masters of the Universe. I didn't do it to get fucking rich because I didn't get fucking rich. And that's not a complaint because I knew going in what I was going to be dealing with. They told me up front what I was going to make and shit. They didn't tell me how much shit I would have to eat because of fucking the animation that I did work on and stuff. But I worked on it because I grew up watching fucking cartoons and the idea of being an adult and I get to do this shit now, I want to do that thing. So yes, it's unfortunate that Anima writers of animation aren't largely included in the WGA, and that has everything to do with good old fucking Walt Disney and shit like that. But at the end of the day, if somebody told me going in, like, they did tell me going in what I was going to make and what it was, and I didn't care. I would do this shit for fucking free. Um, but I wish that as an animation writer I was represented by the Guild, but since I'm not, I could sit on a panel and fucking talk about the thing we did. And it's not just TV cartoons. I mean... 
if you're in the in the animation guild and you write fucking Toy Story, yeah, you don't get residuals on that. That right? Yeah, it's animation from Disney. You don't. Now Disney can decide they run, won't want to reward you. Break you off a piece. You know, in the same way that like George Lucas was like buying motherfuckers. Like here's your giant check, Mark Hamill, for now it's a massive success. Their contracts didn't say you get 5% of gross revenue. He gave them a point. He gave them a point because he thought, like, this is the equitable thing to do. So Disney, like, I wrote Mulan. Great. Good for you. You don't actually get to keep, like, the lion's share of the money that that movie made. The Lion King's share of the money, if you will. What? Dad joke. That is that is two and a half drinks in joke. Yes. <laughs> um, so some people don't get to celebrate that Mulan money. They don't. They don't. You know, and so like unless Disney and their in their grace and, and magnanimitude are like, here you go, person. Here's a bunch of money. Thank you for all of your service. They don't have to do that. They might do it because they want to. You know, we've had those conversations a lot, especially talking about people who write comics and create, say, I don't know, a Winter Soldier, and do not at all get to take any financial part of the billion dollars that that character has made. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? Like, I, it's, I did this. Where's my taste? Just be cool. Yeah, you're asking people <laughs> who hold on to the money to be cool, man. It doesn't work that way. And then, you know, folks outside go like, well, you work in TV and movies. It must be, you must, you make more money than the average person. Not in every fucking case. That's not true. Like, uh, do you, uh, I'm not trying to create a fight, but do you remember what we got paid to work on, like, Masters of the Universe? I do. Tell them. Uh, I think each script was like $10,500, I think is about what I got paid to write a script. Right uh, now, half of the internet is like, you are over fucking paid. <laughs> <laughs> but if I write a script of, I don't know, let's say Castle Rock. Yeah. Uh, or, hey, let's, not Castle Rock, a show based in the Stephen King connected universe, which name I can't mention. <laughs> Uh, good cover, good cover. Or let's say, I don't know, a spaceship show that may or may not use warp speed. <laughs> I, I get paid about $38,000 to write a live action episode of television. And it's the same job. It's the same work. The same craft is I'm trying to engineer emotion and plot and, and empathy out of words on a page. Same fucking job. I should not be getting paid more to do one and less than two. And that is entirely because one guild is strong and the other one is not and can fight for me and the other one won't um, or can't. And it's, I'm not going to say criminal, it's just sad. Yeah. You know, and like there was a, there was a writer who was like, I was a staff writer or a, or a story editor on The Bear, like one of the most popular shows on TV. It was like, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Like, and now my paychecks have stopped because I want to stay on The Bear, and The Bear is a 10-episode show that goes every year, and so there's 10 months of the year I'm not working. And all I made was this money on this show. And that's just not enough to survive on. It's like, hey, I made great. I made $60,000 living in Los Angeles on one season of a show, and I can't do anything else for the rest of the year. And don't forget, a percentage of that goes to an agent, a percentage of that goes yeah. to a lawyer, a percentage of that if, if you collect, if you're lucky enough to collect $60,000 or something, it puts you in a tax bracket where they take more of your fucking money and yeah. stuff. Half that money is going to somebody else. Then you're surviving on $30,000 over the course of a year in Los Angeles, which oh. is why they have nine roommates and they build fake walls and they're living stacked like on a naval carrier. And why they work on multiple things. If you can. 
Because yeah. if you're exclusive to a show, you can't take another job. True. So, like, nobody asking for this money is rich. Nobody's looking, for, nobody's a millionaire looking to make billions. Everybody's like, I just want to pay my fucking rent. Right. I just want to be able to put a kid through school. I want to be able to live the American dream. And I'm so glad and so happy and so honored to get to do this work, to get to write television and make shit up for money. I just want it to be more money. <laughs> which is the way I'm sure everybody feels about literally every job. Yeah, which is true. Yeah. That's why like unions are such a big part of this country. That's why organized labor is so important. Because, and that's why we're fighting against AI, right? Like it's, and AI is coming for everything. You know, like go to a supermarket. Remember there didn't used to be self-checkout lines? Now there are. Remember you used to pay tolls by like paying a person money? That's gone. That's right. Like, there are jobs that are disappearing now because of advances in, in technology and artificial intelligence or whatever. That's, it's going to come for everybody. Every call center is going to be like 80% computers. That used to be somebody's job. Yeah. Every bank teller, every bank used to have a shitload of tellers. Now there's like four machines and one person who's counting nickels. Like, and so to, to think that it's just us complaining, to think that it's just artists and writers and, and actors or whatever, like, if they crack this shit, then like, what happens to, I don't know, college professors? What happens to teachers? What happens to, what happens to like the kids who use AI to write term papers? How do you know if that kid knows anything? It's just that the fabric of society needs some, some safeguards, some fucking bumpers, and some control. And for writers and, and actors, we just want to be the ones in control. It's a tool. Everything is a tool. But don't put it in the hands of the people who do not value the people who make the art. Truth. There you go. All right. Enough about that. Two drinks in. Fight the power. Uh, let's talk about some shit that would have happened at Comic-Con had SAG not be striking. The, Mar the Marvel panel probably would have showcased the Marvels. Probably. But instead, Marvel Studios just dropped the Marvels trailer last night. But we're not supposed to talk about trailers. Not talking about trailers. So anyway. That happened. I hope it was good. I'm going to put on my not fucking SAG hat or Writer's Guild hat, but just fan hat. I saw the trailer. Did you? <laughs> Did you like said trailer? It was a good time, man. I mean, it's kind of a version of the first trailer they showed us, but with more villain this time around. You got to see more of the villain. But it looks like it's a fun time, and goddamn, if they're not milking that fucking Beastie Boys remix for all it's worth. <laughs> it better be in the fucking movie and not just the trailer. If not, I will be upset. Um, and they've got Nick Fury, fun Nick Fury in it. Fun Fury. As opposed to the Fury who's on TV right now, who's sad Fury. <laughs> Have you been watching still? Uh, since we talked about it, I have not seen another episode. Yeah. Not because I didn't like it, just like, I'm just not motivated to do it. Uh, Something huge happened, though. Again? Yeah, I mean, did, last time we talked about it, they didn't reveal the, the Avenger who was the Skrull, did they? They did not, no. So, spoilers, kids, if you haven't watched Secret Evasion, cover your ears and shit. But they revealed that... Spoilers, three, two, am I allowed to talk about it? The whole fucking internet's talking about it. Can't we talk about it? You can talk about it. They revealed that Rhodey this whole time has been a fucking scroll. I told you to cover your fucking ears. <laughs> Listen, all I'm going to say would, is... Five years ago, this would have broke the fucking internet. Listen, all I'm going to say is, there's like 48 white Avengers. <laughs> and like... It's like one black dude and he's evil. Do you know who the bad guy was? Just who you think, man. 
Oh my Racial God. profiling. Thank I, you. I hadn't even fucking processed that. I'm so white, that never occurred to me. I was like, he's going to say Hawkeye. He's going to say, nobody likes Hawkeye anyway. It's fine. <laughs> nope. So they took that from us, everybody. <laughs> um, what, uh, what have you been watching? Uh, speaking of the bear, the bear. Um, which everybody tells me I should be watching. Here's Soon why you I should be watching. And I tried to explain to you last time. Yes. It is the best show I've ever seen about the collaborative creative process. It is fundamentally about broken people trying to figure out a purpose for their own lives and how they find it in making art. And in the show, that art happens to be food. And the way that they kind of iterate and discover and reveal things both about themselves and the art that they're trying to make and how they collaborate with each other. And it's like, like being in a kitchen feels like being in a writer's room in a way. Like there's your head chef who thinks he knows what he's doing, but is probably fucked up. There's your, your CDC, the chef de cuisine, who's like the person who's got to actually get the fucking show done. There's your weird person in the corner who's like really good at one thing, but awful at everything else. There's the one person like chronically underpaid, but is doing all the work anyway. Um, and then there's the, the, the people dining who are your audience who have no idea what happened behind that wall, right. but just love the food that comes out. And, and specifically, there's an episode, if you've seen The Bear and you're caught up on season two, episode seven, Forks, which is about fucking, you know, Richie, the most dysfunctional character on the show, learning to be good at a thing and discovering what his life could be if he only devoted himself to it. It's wonderful and heartbreaking and enthusiastic and I've watched that episode like five times just to feel something. <laughs> um, Gave up cutting, did you? I, I did, you know, like it was, it was a whole thing, but my arms are thankful. Um, but it is, it's Ted Lasso with a little bit more grit, but just as much like, oh, this is what humanity can do if we have respect for each other and the product we're making. And it's glorious. And it's 28 minutes an episode. Oh, you just sold it. See? I did it, you guys. I'm definitely going to deep dive. Bamf man, everybody. Give it up for Jason. I, I just want to give the world of this room and the internet a quick disclaimer that if you have worked in the restaurant business or happen to own a restaurant, Bragger. The show is very PTSD. It's a hard watch. It hurts you in ways that you didn't know you could be hurt. Hurt, Chef. <laughs> All right, so The Bear is worth watching. The Bear is worth watching. Uh, what else can we talk about? Uh, I mean, I can mention some news very quickly, things that have happened in the world. Let's go down the um, news. Fuck it. Well, can I share some, some news? Some news? Sure, Obviously. Sure, sure, sure. I've had too many of whatever. Why you, you can share some news. The, uh, the, um, we did that Masters of the Universe panel, and we announced something I've known forever and stuff, but now the world knows it. What is it? Uh, the voice of Hordak in our show, because Hordak yeah. is a major part of uh, Masters of the Universe Revolution. Uh, is being provided by the amazing Keith David. <gasps> yes. You get to hang out with Keith David? I've, I've watched him fucking work, man, and worked with him. Um, <laughs> oh. Never have I asked for so fewer takes from somebody who just fucking nails it in the first fucking take. And I gave him a lot of alliterative dialogue, and he makes it work so beautifully. 
Um, and also now you're making me wish that I worked on season two. Right? You missed out, man. Fuck. Could have put words in the mouth of fucking Keith David and shit. Can I still do it? Can I just fucking like text you some shit? Yes, just give me some lines for him to write while the writer's guild strike is happening. No, it's, it's for my fucking voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also they at our panel we announced that uh, Orko in the show was going to have a frenemy of sorts, but we couldn't say who it was during the panel because they wanted to drive people to the Mattel booth to see. They were like, when this panel's over, we're going to put the action figure on display so you can see who it is. But until then, sh you're going to have to go to the Mattel panel to figure it out. Now word is out there in the world so I could share it here. You remember the Masters of the Universe movie? Yes. Remember Billy Barty played a character called Wildor? Yes, that was supposed to be Orko, but they were like, well, this is as close as we can get. Yeah. We fucking stole Wildor and put him in our fucking show. You motherfuckers. Yes, it's going to be good fucking times. And the other thing I announced on that panel, which the internet seemed amused by, is we've announced previously that William Shatner has joined the show. Yes. Um, the Shat himself. And so um, Mark Hamill, of course, plays our Skeletor, as he did in season one. Um, I talked about it on the panel and then I got yelled at afterwards, but it's out there already, so fuck it, I can talk about it here. We have a scene where fucking William Shatner and, and we have a few scenes where William Shatner and Mark Hamill act opposite one another. So finally, Luke Skywalker and Captain Kirk are fucking interacting. The Force is strong with this one. Yes. Um, okay, do your fucking pithy news then. All right, we got the flashy, flashy light, so we're going to blaze through this shit. Um, yeah, uh, folks at home, um, we're, we're so limited in our time here because at night, the movies pop up, turns into movies after dark, and a band comes up on this very stage, and the, the tin roof end goes back to, like, selling booze uh, and whatnot. So uh, it's a shorter show, but we're going to go over because I'm drunk and we have news and shit. <laughs> Us out. Uh, so remember, these are very good, by the way. Whatever the fuck these are. What are they called? Yeah. Strawberry Joy? Hurricanes. Strawberry Hurricanes. I'm I fucking mean, I'm, in. My face is numb. I'm pretty sure there's a drag queen somewhere else in the gas lamp whose name is Strawberry Hurricane. <laughs> uh, remember there was going to be a Lando Calrissian TV show? Yeah, of course. I can't wait to watch it. Uh, it's going to be a while. For you to watch that show. A Red Hot Minute? A Why? Red Hot Minute. Um, is Donald Glover so busy on other things? Uh, there is that, but also Justin Simeon, who just released um, the, the Haunted Mansion reboot movie for Disney, mm -hmm. was the guy who was writing and producing that show. And he just did an episode, part of that press thing, which he could do as a director, not as a writer. Right. Uh, talked about that, uh, you know, allegedly it's still happening, but he doesn't know when or if. Uh, he said, I certainly poured my heart and spent a lot of time working with, with, with Disney and Lucasfilm to put together a really great show. It feels like everybody loves it. And as you know, we had to put a pause on it because of scheduling. And the next update he got was in 2020, some years ago. And I don't know. I have no idea what's going on with it. Donald Glover, in an interview with GQ earlier this year, was like, I'd love to play Lando again. It's a fun time to be him. It just needs the right way to do it. Um, and he said that I'm not interested in doing anything that's just going to be a waste of my time or just a paycheck. I'd rather spend my time with people that I enjoy. So, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe like everybody wants to do it, but they don't know exactly what that version of it is going to be. Um, similarly, John Boyega, who uh, 
had had his frictions with Lucasfilm. Yes. Uh, during that sort of. He's in something that's dropping today, by the way. Which they got cloned a Tyrone. Yes, it's on a net. It's Netflix. It's on the uh, streamer that whose name we shall not mention. Uh, that everybody has. That most people. But have. it has like better reviews than both Barbie and Oppenheimer. I read an article about yeah. it. Yeah. It's fu apparently it's amazing. What is it called? They cloned Tyrone. And it's him, Jamie, Jamie Foxx, Fox, Zazie Bates. And somebody, and uh, Captain Marvel, too. Um, Diana Parrish, is that her name? Diana Parrish, yes. Yeah. Um, so that's worth watching, apparently. I'll be checking that out. Yeah, but he said that he's open to coming back to Star Wars. Like, he, he had famously talked about the lack of protection that he felt while doing Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker and, and The Last Jedi, both for him and Kelly Marie Tran and the internet who came for them for apparently being brown in Star Wars as a crime. And, uh, and so he was like, listen, that was a few years ago, but I'm open to characters and scripts that are all enjoyable, have a great cast attached and a terrific director. So he will happily return to a galaxy far, far away. He also gave, ranked the Star Wars sequels in order. And where'd he land? Um, he said The Force Awakens was the best, then he put... Um, um, I mean, in terms of the three that he was involved Oh, yeah, but still wrong. <laughs> he put Force Awakens as the best. He put um, uh, Revenge... No, what was the third one called? Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker is the second. And he said that Last Jedi was his least favorite. Wow. I mean, he's wrong in almost every way. Uh, but, I mean, sure, whatever. Hey, John Boyega. It's opinion. You. It's just opinion. It's just opinion. Fact. So there's not, it's not possible to have a wrong opinion until you have a wrong opinion. Oh, shit, Kevin, listen, we're gonna have to... That would be the fifth. Don't applaud this shit. When I need help in two years and shit, where will you be? Like, hey, welcome to Fat Man Beyond. This is a fundraiser for my new kidney because it turned out that I became an alcoholic. <laughs> Who knew it was so easy? All you had to do was put sugar in the booze. Um, oh, shit. Bam. Hey, it's Banff Man, everybody give it up for Banff Man. I might not be the right one to suggest this, but I have a little bit of a experience with Star Wars. Lando Calrissian, nobody knows what to do. What about the little, uh, little uh, maneuver he pulled at the Battle of Tanab, right? Don't we all want to see what he pulled at the Battle of Tanab? Make a show about that. Way to, way to white-splain one of the only black characters in Star Wars. <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's mean, a way like, to do it. I'd like to believe that what he pulled at the Battle of Tanab was his dick out. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck this robot, you guys, and win this war. <laughs> uh, and the last thing we'll hit quickly, because it, it happened, I think, just after our last show, is that uh, apparently there's a shit ton of people in this new Superman Legacy movie that James Gunn is doing, including uh, a Green Lantern, including Metamorpho, including Mr. Terrific and Hawkgirl, are all going to be in his Superman movie. Who's playing him, do you know? Well, we uh, know that fucking, what's his name? Is, the rookie is playing. Nathan Fillion, the greatest man that ever was. Why are you saying, are you a Firefly? Have I ever told you my Nathan Fillion story? No, tell me. So... I, uh, back when I was a, a, a journalist for the LA Times, I got invited to movie premieres for like a year. It was a glorious year of, uh, of free food and shitty booze. And uh, so I went to this uh, Captain America Civil War premiere. Okay. And I got to take my son, who at that point was like 13 years old, to his first movie premiere. And so we're sitting up in like the second tier of the, 
of the, the oh, Dolby yeah. Theater. No, it was oh, like the shit. Dolby. It was, they went big for fucking Captain America. And so we're sitting where like TV stars get to sit. The floor is where movie stars get to sit. Right. So like I'm like three or four rows behind Nathan Fillion. And so I say, hey buddy, do you want to go meet Nathan Fillion? He's like, who? And I go, your mom has a crush on him because of Castle. He's like, well then let's make mom jealous. And so we go up to, it's like, hey Nathan, how are you, man? He's like, Mark, it's good to see you again. Who's this? Oh, this is my son, Luke. And he kneels down eye to eye and he says, Luke, I'm a big fan of your dad's. And I was like, fuck you. How dare you unleash such Canadian charm on my boy who's not ready for it, has no idea how to withstand it. And like the sweetest fucking guy. And I hadn't seen him for like five years and like remembered my name, fucking just beamed, like blew me up in front of my kid. I was like, I can never say a bad thing about you because you didn't have to do that. That's true. I, I, I always remain, I ride for people who are nice when they don't have to be. Right. And there's no reason for him to be that fucking kind. Was this before or after we had him and Tudic on the show? Um, before. Fucking hey. Before. Like, I interviewed him once for, for Entertainment Weekly um, when Castle was in its second season. Right. And like since then, every couple of years, we find some way to kind of glance against each other. And all the time he remembers my name, he's always super fucking kind. And so I am eternally just a joy to watch him fucking live his dreams. He gets to be fucking Green Lantern. He gets to be Guy Gardner. Yes, not he just any Green Lantern, but Guy Gardner. Who gets to be Guy Gardner? Nobody Who else is in the cast? Um, let's see. A woman named Isabella Merced is playing Hawk Girl. Edie Gathegi is playing Mr. Terrific. Uh, if anybody watched um, X-Men First Class, he played the unfortunately named Darwin, who uh, I, can, I can adapt to anything except apparently death. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there was fucking one more. Oh, right. Anthony Carrigan, who was in Barry, yeah. uh, do with alopecia, yeah, yeah. is playing Metamorpho. Oh, Rex that's Mason. dope. Yeah, that's some good casting. Right? Yeah. And so, like, Superman Legacy looks like it's going to be a fucking Justice League movie. Yeah. Um, which I read incredible. something where Gum was because people were like, what the fuck? Where's Superman in this movie? He's like, look, Superman is more than just Lois and Perry White and Jimmy Olsen. He works with the Justice League all the time as well. So the idea of him working with other heroes, I'm here for it. Um, and the last story is a little bit sad if you're a, a fucking old school comic book person, as you and I are. We are. But uh, Heavy Metal... Were you a heavy metal fan? Of course, growing up, absolutely. Uh, drawn nudity is one of my favorite <laughs> kinds of nudity in the world. And I loved the heavy metal cartoon movie, the animated feature from Ooh. years and years ago. That was pretty good. Uh, heavy Metal as a magazine apparently is no longer in production. It is no longer in publication. Is that right? With issue 320, which apparently uh, was supposed to come out. There's supposed to be volume two, number one, coming out in early 2023. Didn't happen, and so the very last issue of, of Heavy Metal is currently on stands, and nobody has any intentions to publish anymore, and that's just kind of fucking sad, because yeah. it had always been a part of, if not my childhood, I probably bought like five or six copies of it, but I just loved that it existed. I loved yeah. that there was an anthology of adult-themed, just fucking cartooning, some of the best to ever do it, yeah. and so that that's gone, and to discover that at Comic-Con felt a little uh, sad. 
Cherish the things you love while they exist, kids. There's this feeling that, like, it'll always be there, and it isn't always going to be there, man. Let's raise one up for fucking heavy metal. Ever go home fucking jerk off to heavy metal one last time? <laughs> I mean, for the kids. Just do it for the fucking kids. Do it for the kids who won't be able to do it in the future. All right, we we're, know we're supposed to end the show, but we generally end the show with some questions. So let's take at least one fucking question before we get out of here and stuff. The Tin Roof Inn will afford us a little more time, won't they? Yes. Got a thumbs they up. did. We just got a thumbs up. Well fucking done. Thank you. Give it up for the folks of the Tin Roof Inn. I mean, if you want to do one question, if you wanted to say, give that away. That's true, man. Whoever asked the question is going to walk away with this $50 fucking item right here, man. No, no gifts. This one's mine. <laughs> I, I think Brett Deacon showed up with some 4DX tickets also. Did he really? Is there a 4DX in San Diego? Woo! Nice shit. How many we got? One set or a couple sets in here? 400 tickets. <laughs> Folks, if you've never seen You movie, get a ticket, and you get a ticket. Yeah. Everyone look under your seats. <laughs> if you've never seen a 4DX movie, what the fuck are you waiting for, man? I don't know if Barbie's 4DX, but fuck. I certainly hope Oppenheimer's not. <laughs> your chair would fucking explode. So it looks like we got one, two, three, four, five. Three sets of Six. Seven, Thanks, Brett. eight, fucking Brett. Yeah, Come on, Brett. nine, and ten. Jesus, we get to ask fucking five questions. To six. six. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> my, my math is way wrong. I yeah. Just, strawberry this, hurricane. This is my fifth fucking strawberry hurricane. Uh, all right, let's rapid fire them as, and, and go through these 40X questions. Kids, go see a movie in 40X. Uh, it's not just a plug because they give us free tickets. It's legitimately fun. They don't do every movie in 4DX. For example, Clerks 3, never done in 4DX. There's just so much smoke in the theater. Yes. But there are some cool movies they do in 4DX, man. Me and Josh went to see fucking uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in 4DX and dislocated our shoulders because it jerked us around so fucking much. Literally threw Dr. Josh Rash out of his seat. Um, so if you're, if you're near a theater and they've got one in every major city across America, almost, Check them out, the good folks at 40X. All right, I'm gonna let you pick the questions and shit because I don't want to get in trouble. All right, oh, right here. Where did the DCEU go wrong? Not hiring me and Mark for number one, that's for sure. I'm gonna say they didn't necessarily go wrong, man. I, you know, I, I, I love the Snyderverse stuff, man. It's absolutely fucking grown on me and stuff. And I, I said that I would keep watching Batman v Superman until I fucking loved it, and I have. And I've gotten to a place where I did. I love what Zack did with his corner of the universe and stuff. It reminded me of the world of comics, where sometimes you get somebody doing a take on the material that's different from everybody else's take, but just as fucking valid. So I, I, I don't feel like they went wrong creatively. Financially, I can't answer that. Like at the end of the day, an audience is gonna pick what an audience is gonna pick. And most of the DCEU stuff was up against Marvel at their most fucking powerful, establishing a fucking tone and stuff. And so you'd have people going to see a Marvel movie but getting a DCEU experience and I guess it wasn't the same thing for them. So my answer is they didn't go wrong. And I'm glad those movies exist. And if you love those movies, keep fucking loving them and stuff.
um, doesn't mean just because some people don't feel the same way you do that it's invalid by any stretch of the imagination. Mark? Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, here's, here's, and now for some truth by Mark Bernardo. <laughs> here, here's, here's what I'll say. I remember having a, I, I, had, I had hired, when I was at The Hollywood Reporter, I hired Greg Rucker to write me a story about um, Superman, Man of Steel. And the closure of his story was, there should not be a Superman movie that I cannot take a 15-year-old to go see or a 12-year-old to go see. Like, dark is not always the solution to mature. And Superman that kills is kind of a thing that I can't ever really countenance. And the decisions to do that, I don't understand all of, but you can make a Superman movie where he's just a fucking good person, you know, and unironically good. And the, the, the reason I know that is because they made a Captain America movie where he's unironically good. There is no jacket and a gun. There is no blinking sideways at it. There's this, he's fucking Captain America, and we all bought it. And you could do that with Superman if you wanted to. They just didn't trust it enough that an audience would roll with a Superman who found another way to, to stop Zod, who strapped on that fucking cape and tights, not because his dad told him not to, because his dad told him, the world deserves you, Clark. You need to go and be fucking super. And so I think that to a certain degree, it was a little tainted from the root, and everything that sprung out of that was a little bit not quite right. Um, there's parts of Man of Steel that I love, but a, a kind of weird take on what that character kind of always has been and always stood for. So that's that's just where I sit. Bam, one down, there you go, man. Moving on to the next question, JC Pitt. I'll also say, if you wanna get your, just come up to me after the show and get your tickets so we don't If you were the one that asked the question. Yeah. Don't just come up and ask for fucking tickets. You gotta remember the question or whatever, fuck. Right down here. Mark, can you talk about the distillery thing? Mark, can you talk about the distillery I, thing? Since we can see you, let's give you the tickets right yes. there. Very quickly, Distillery is a brand new comic book company uh, started by the guys who did Comicsology Originals, um, which I did Adore in the Distance through. And their whole plan is to kind of make big, fucking gorgeous comic books and to empower the creators to participate in the, in the, in the revenues. Of the, I, I own equity in the company, apparently, which is kind of nuts. Um, and it's a murder of talent. It's like Scott Snyder and Jock and me and, uh, and, and Lee Garbett and, and Tula Lotus. Wait, what happened to Comixology? Comixology original still kind of existed. It still kind of exists. Hey. Um, but it's kind of not as robust a publishing experience as it used to be. Copy. And the driving forces of it kind of left and went and started this new thing. And they've got a big booth in the fucking Comic-Con floor. I'm signing over there tomorrow at noon if you want to come by, and, and I'll show you what they're doing. It's kind of gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, that's Distillery in a nutshell. Well, well done, well done. <laughs> Go ahead, JC. we got four more. Uh, at the bar closest to me. What are our dream characters to write for in comics that we haven't already? Come up and get your tickets. Um, for me... Let's see. I wrote for my my dream character, of course, was writing for Batman. I got to do that. My dream character is writing for Green Arrow. I got to do that. Dream character is writing for Daredevil. I got to do that. But I've always wanted to write for The Question. I fucking love The Question. It's one of my favorite titles of all time. So uh, one day, hopefully, I'll, I'll get to do that. I didn't include him in anything I've ever done before. I don't think I've ever written a word of dialogue for The Question. 
So it'd be nice to be able to do that eventually. You? Um, one day and one day soon, I hope, I get to write Conan the Barbarian. Um, and I've gotten close once or twice, and sometimes it's fallen apart because of my own um, kind of bandwidth availabilities, but Conan the Barbarian is, is, a, is a foundational character for me. Um, one might say seminal, except I've never masturbated to it. Uh, uh, but yeah, knock on wood, I'll get to write The Sumerian before too long. Got it done. Got it done. Um, all right, we've got three more questions left. Go. I was very fortunate last night to watch Splinter. And, uh, he was very fortunate enough last night to watch Splinter. And now that you're both directors, uh, Mark, what was the thing that surprised you the most that Kevin couldn't even prepare you for as being a director and being so close to him? Jesus, that's long. Do it slow. I'm fucking five hurricanes in. Mark, well, well, don't do the first part. Don't do the end. Mark, now that we're both directors, me and Mark. Right. What was the thing you could not prepare me for in the experience of directing? Copy. And, uh, and there's a part fucking B to this? <laughs> what was your feeling when you saw uh, Splinter and what was your feeling on Mark and how good and well he did? What was my feeling when I first saw Splinter and what was my feeling about Mark as a director? Copy. Uh, the thing Kevin could not prepare me for was how exhausting it would be to direct. Um, it requires like all of your sort of mental capacity. It requires a level of physical exertion that I didn't know I had to, to put forth because I've watched him do it. But it's you can't know until you do it. Um, but I mean, the thing that he told me, and I think, excuse me, I mentioned it at the band. <laughs> I just did the same thing. Is the like your job as a director is to a make decisions and b keep the mood light. Like you're you're throwing a party and you're hoping that everybody who comes can have a good time doing it. And like I very much took that to heart, but I had no idea just how fucking taxing it would be to the point where I was like, hey, do you want to do this again? It's like not today, maybe not this year, maybe not ever. And I don't know how one makes a real movie that takes thirty days to shoot or a fucking Bond movie that takes six months to shoot. Mm. I'm wiped after four days. And so that was the, the sort of the big, oh shit, he was, he's crazy and in way better shape than I thought he was. <laughs> Thanks. Well, um, what did I think about when I saw Splinter? I enjoyed the fuck out of it. I was so happy um, that it told a coherent story because I was like, if he fucks this up, <laughs> as the guy who always shits on everything, fucking like, it's gonna have trouble and shit, but he didn't. It was all there and you could see it and whatnot. Um, what did I think of him as a director? The, the idea that you can bring a vision to life, like I, I think, I'm not taking anything away from directing, but I've done it now for 30 fucking years. And I know there are people that are better at it than me. Um, and I know there are people that are not as good as it, at it as I am and stuff. Um, that all being said, anybody can fucking direct. Literally anybody. If you ever spent any moment of your childhood playing with other people and being like, you say this, you stand here, this is what we're doing, that's literally all directing is. This is the playing that you do in childhood done on an adult level. And like he said, it's a job of answering questions. As long as you can answer questions that are fired at you as rapidly as possible by as many different sources as possible, you can absolutely direct. That's what it comes down to. People are going like black or white, and you're like, oh, definitely fucking black. Uh, fucking long or short, oh, definitely it needs to be short. Fucking this or that, oh, it definitely needs to be that. That's basically it, because a crew and a cast is trying to get out of your head 
a vision that you have. You have the tools. And the idea of directing is communication, communicating those tools to others so that they can do the thing that you see in your head. If one day we get to a place where we can cast our thoughts onto some fucking, you know, AI screen and fuck AI, but if we could do that and fucking people could see what's in your head, that would be an easy way to communicate what you dream about, what you see. But if you can't do that in this world, this best of all possible world, you can't yet. You have to be able to communicate that idea and get it across to a bunch of people who are not inside your head. So when I watched Splinter, I understood Mark got that. He was able to communicate what was in his head and heart to his cast and crew, and they made the thing. I'm happy for anybody when they take their step forward into a creative world and make pretend as adults. We get to make pretend as children, and it's so fucking fun. And then at some point, life forces you to grow up and get a real job and leave those things behind. And I was a firm believer in like, why? You know, why do you have to do that? There's this whole industry and world that is predicated on fucking dreaming and making pretend. So when I see any adult enter that world or any fucking kid, it makes me happy, man. There are two paths in this world, that's it. There's creation and fucking destruction and shit. So the idea of anyone choosing a creation path just fills me with fucking joy. Because at the end of the day, they're making something and putting it into the fucking world, not breaking it down and fucking destroying it and shitting on it and whatnot. They're making something, presenting it to the world. And creativity is like, it's the only hope that we fucking have. That's where new ideas come from. That's where new hope comes from. Even if you're not a person who is uh, prone to making art or something like that, you are a person that is informed by art. So anytime anyone makes a step toward creativity, I applaud that 100%. When someone you absolutely love does that, and does that in a way where they're like, I, wanted, I always wanted to do this before I was this fucking age and shit, and went out there and fucking made it happen and shit, oh, I was ebullient as fuck, man. And then the fact that it's like, I already support that, but that it was good and fucking watchable and fucking like I got exactly what was inside his head and heart made me very fucking happy. And it's sad to hear him say, like, it's tiring. But, like, fucking, because he should do it more. He sits here every week and tells a bunch of people that they're doing their jobs wrong. So, <laughs> at the end of the day, the fact that he did his job right, like, was proof that he knows what he's talking about. So I hope, I know it's tiring and shit, fucking so tiring, but I hope that he does it more before he leaves this best of all possible worlds. And, and for all of that, he was like, cut that scene. I did. I, right away. <laughs> right away. I was like, well, I mean, I'm an armchair director, so I couldn't help but be like, you could lose that. You could lose that. I'm more of an armchair editor than anything yeah, else. Yeah, because like, you can cut that easy. Trim, trim like four seconds off of that, a few seconds off of that, you're golden. I do. A short can always be shorter. They call, yes. <laughs> they call me a director, and I'm happy to accept that title, but really... I'm more of an editor. I, when I shoot on set, I'm constantly editing in my head. I'm constantly, I only shoot what I need. Anybody who's worked with me will tell you this. I don't overshoot and shit, and I'm like, we'll figure this out in the editing room. Bullshit. I shoot a movie like a fucking kid's puzzle. You know, some puzzles are like a thousand fucking pieces, and then kid's puzzles are like ten fucking pieces. <laughs> I shoot a movie like a kid's puzzle, which is like, I'm only shooting the pieces I need that are going to fit together to give you the picture that's in here and stuff. So I'm never the guy that's like, we'll figure this out later. I figure it out on set. That's the indie film mindset. We don't have enough money to figure it out later on.
So my instincts all come very editorially. So when I watched his short, I didn't have notes about like, oh my God, this is what you could have done as a director and shit. My only notes were like, this is what you can lose. Lose this, lose this, lose this, and you're fucking golden and stuff. He was almost always right. <laughs> All right, man, those are your tickets. We got two more to go. All right, Heart Attack jersey. Uh, pass these tickets back. Do I feel worried about the fact? Go, say it again. Comic Con be worried about the fact. Should Comic Con be worried about the fact that studios? One more time. Don't see the value of coming to Comic Con anymore. Um, I don't think studios are ever going to go away from Comic Con completely because at the end of the day, it's one more place to promote. And if you're making a genre film, why not fucking come here? So I don't think they'll ever abandon this place. Obviously, this year, there were plenty of reasons to abandon this place uh, because they didn't have actors to come and, and talk about the things that they were doing and whatnot. So I don't think they're going away permanently. Um, I think it ebbs and flows. I think there was a period, a long stretch of time, where every studio had to be here every year in order to remain relevant. And then they figured out that, like, you could take a year off. Marvel took a year off from Hall H before. You know, they've taken a year off this year, obviously, with the SAG strike and whatnot. But there have been years where Marvel didn't come here. And then they'll come back the next year and they'll come fucking hard, man, right in your face, neck, and chest. <laughs> so they know the value of this place. But this place does not live and die by fucking studios and, and, and their product. This place has existed for how many years? When did they, what, what year I mean, are we it's, in? It's, yeah, it's 1970, is that what you 70. So the year I was years. 50. Is that right? Yes, because I'm going to be 53. Well, then wait. How is that possible? 50, almost 53 years. So they've been, this con has been happening for 53 years, and it started with a passionate bunch of individuals who loved shit that the world maybe didn't understand. Now everyone's on their page. They understand the shit. They understand the value of it. And they inspire fucking adults to come to a place and sometimes put on funny outfits and hang out and talk about things very passionately that don't exist in the real world. But their passion brings that shit very nearly to fucking life. They're modern day Geppettos at all fucking points who are bringing a Pinocchio to life just simply by fucking being here. So anybody worth their salt that is trying to promote a fucking movie would know that this place is valuable. Hollywood will never fucking abandon it completely. It'll ebb and flow. Maybe they've realized they don't need to do it every fucking year, only when they have something worth bringing to an event like Comic-Con. But Hollywood is not what necessitates, or nor is it the lifeblood of what this con is and has always fucking been. It thrives on fucking passion. This room is full of people who love movies, but maybe don't have anything to do with the movie industry. This con floor over at fucking the San Diego Comic-Con looks like this. It's not filled with a bunch of studio executives. It's filled with people who love a fucking thing that they can't explain to people in their hometown, but they know that they could come here once a year and be surrounded by a bunch of like-minded individuals who feel the same way they do about unrealistic shit. So at the end of the day, Hollywood is not, we're not dependent on Hollywood at this con. They're welcome, always fucking welcome and stuff because we love the things they make and stuff. Maybe not this year because we're striking, but generally speaking, 
We love what they make. We're part of the dream factory. We're part of the audience. We're part of the makers of those things sometimes. So they have a place at this table, but they do not set this fucking table. Fandom sets this fucking table and always will. Yeah. Uh, nothing further, counselor. <laughs> Bam. Banff Band's in the house, everybody. Go ahead, Banff Band. I'll, I'll add something. Uh, when I made Scum and Villainy, the dream was to create the Comic-Con bar. Nice. Not like the after party, right? Because that's what you remember when you go home to wherever you're going, is the night you spent talking to the person you didn't know about what you saw. Preach. You don't really remember what you saw, you remember the people that you met. So Comic-Con isn't about studios or what you bought or who you saw or what autograph you got. It's about community. And as long as people show up, like, it'll be fine. One of the greatest, give it up for that, it's beautiful. One of the greatest movie-going experiences of my entire fucking life, and I say that as a person who has watched movies his entire fucking life and now owns a fucking movie theater, that's how much I believe in the craft and the art form. I went to see this movie, I don't know if everybody ever saw it, but it's called The Dark Knight. And I was invited there by Peter Sharetta, who used to run Slash Film. And I went with a couple of, uh, they were journalists, you know, film journals and stuff and had movie websites and whatnot. And Peter's like, hey, I got tickets to this thing. You want to go? I said, absolutely. I love The Dark Knight. It's an amazing fucking movie. But my memories of The Dark Knight, aside from the movie itself, extend to the conversation that we had for an hour and a half after that movie ended outside of the fucking theater. I still think about it to this day as we sat there and dissected this fucking movie, which like transcended the art form at that point, where suddenly we were like watching this fucking movie where I said it that day, like in the parking lot, I was like, this is the Godfather 2 of fucking comic book movies, man. It took this shit so seriously, it transcended. The conversations that we had in that parking lot, to me, are as meaningful as watching the movie was. So that's all a part of everybody being involved. It's not just watching the fucking thing. It's the conversations that we have after the fucking thing. That matters just as much as watching the fucking thing. And that's always what this podcast was supposed to be. Yes. That's always how we described it was this is the conversation you have after seeing a movie that you love or hate. And you're hanging out in the parking lot before you get in your cars and go home. Yes. That's all that this ever was. It's fucking oh, good, two guys who love movies who just want to talk about it. All right, and, and I don't know if my math's correct because I'm fucking wasted. Is this uh, the last one to go? Uh, go? Wonder Woman right here. I've talked about wearing many hats in my life, uh, director, writer, exhibitor, podcaster, so forth, so forth, and so forth. Fuck them. <laughs> Do I have a favorite hat and why? Um, what a great fucking question. I'm trying to think if I have a favorite hat. Fan? Fan? Maybe it, because at the end of the day, that's at the root of fuck it, thank you. Thank you for thinking for a drunk man. <laughs> At the root of everything I do is a passion for it that grew from fandom. You don't, you can't be it unless you see it first. And what I saw as my entire life as a fan, and that life has extended up until this fucking moment right now, 
was what I wanted to be and fucking do. The possibility of who I can be based on what I fucking watched. So I didn't become a director because I was the first person that discovered directing. I became a director because I saw other people do it because as a young age, I realized there was somebody behind the movies. They didn't just fucking happen. Somebody had a vision and brought that shit to life. I became a writer because I understood at a young age that somebody had to create these fucking words and stick them into the mouths of actors. I became an actor because it looked fucking fun. I became a podcaster because like I listened to Howard Stern as a kid who sat around with his friends and fucking had conversations for four hours fucking every weekday morning. And I was like, what a great way to live that would fucking be. There's always somebody doing a thing that I look at and be like, that seems fucking fun. I would like to try that. So I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for thinking for me when I can't think anymore. I think at the root of everything I do is being a fucking fan. And so I think wearing the fan hat fits the most comfortably. Everything else I could be criticized as. I could be criticized as a filmmaker, I could be criticized as a writer, and I assure you, I've been criticized as fucking bull. Somehow they've criticized me as a fucking podcaster as well and stuff. Anything I choose to do and got paid for professionally, I could be criticized for, but nobody can criticize you as a fan because you love what you fucking love. So I agree with them. The fan hat is the one that fits fucking best. And I've said it for years. I was a member of the audience before anything else. Before I became a maker or anything like that, I was a member of the audience. And one day, that is where I will go back to. That is where I will retire to. Because maybe one day I'll grow out of wanting to do a thing. Maybe fucking the audience will beat me down to the point of like, I don't want to make a fucking thing anymore. But nobody will ever take me away from fucking the joy of watching a fucking thing, appreciating a thing, losing myself for a half an hour, one hour, two hours in fucking make-believe or a whole season of fucking make-believe. I started as a fan, I'll die a fucking fan. I'm a fan right fucking now, so fan. Uh, the hat that I feel most comfortable at home in. Um, I think it's, it's uh, apparent. I think, and, and, and parent not just for my own children, because whatever, like I have to, I suppose, legally. <laughs> By law, yeah. The government will come for me if I'm shitty. <laughs> yes. But I think it's the thing that, as a, as a parent, you want to be able to do, right? It's, and, the, and the role of a parent which is not just to teach, which is not just to help counsel and guide and all that shit. But if you're a good parent, you learn as much from your kids as you, as you help teach them something. And to always, like, it's about caring. It's about giving of yourself before you give to yourself. It's about sharing the things that you love with the people that you are the closest to. Um, and it's wishing well, even if you can no longer have any control over. You know, I mean, when I, when I see people in the world, whether I know them or I don't know them, the thing that I say instead of goodbye is, be good. Go ahead, be good. And it's not because I'm like, why am I crying? Am I drunk? You are! I saw, I heard your voice crack and I was like, he's gonna fucking cry! Do it, do it, let it spill! As a guy who cries on the internet for a living, do it, do it! It feels good. It does feel good, it's cathartic. You're gonna be called a soy boy, but whatever the fuck. But it's it's just like find a way to have grace in the world and be kind to each other, be good to each other.
when you leave tonight, as you walk into the gas lamp and dodge, like, you know, fucking bachelorette parties and Klingons and all that shit, <laughs> just, like, be good. Be good to yourself. Be good to each other. Be good to this place. Be good to fandom. Be good to the shit you love. And, uh, and be good to us. Because why not? Fucking A. Give it up for Mark Bernard. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been forced to sit with two drunk middle-aged men <laughs> and their passions and feelings. Y'all have a good time tonight. For those of you who are sticking around to take pictures with us, we'll be doing it upstairs in a few minutes. They'll line you up and tell you where to go. If you're like, what the fuck? We can take pictures with those crying bitches and shit? <laughs> you can sign up right here if you want to join us and stuff like that. But my first and most important question is, kids, have you had a good time tonight? Yeah. If you did, man, we have a couple people to thank. Give it up for the good folks who hosted the movies pop up, the Tin Roof Band. Give it up for Bamf Band himself, JC. Give it up for Dr. Josh Roush, who made sure you could see us at home. Wrong reasons coming out, fucking mid August, kids. Get it. Fucking that's Josh's movie. And give it up for the man, the crybaby next to me. Mark fucking Bernard. Thank you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, kids of all ages, is Fat Man Beyond for this week. I'm Kevin Smith. I'm a crying bitch. <laughs> Tune in next time. Same fat time. Same fat channel. Smogcast.com or YouTube.com slash Kevin Smith. A Comic-Con Jeff's kiss to all of you. Mwah! This has been a Smodco Internet Production. Sip only at Smodcast.com. <laughs>